0: Hello and welcome to tonight's show We've had some technical difficulties But we are here now You can hear me Uh, I can't hear you, but I know you can hear me And that's what's important Tonight we are talking sublime Not only are we talking sublime We are talking about the sublime documentary From 2019 It never came out Um, I have managed to see this documentary And I have a lot of thoughts You know, I am a big sublime fan i'm maybe not as knowledgeable as i am as i am with like misfit stuff but you know i know a couple of things and and i got some i got some thoughts here i got some thoughts i wanted to discuss them with you all um you know the sublime story is an interesting one it's you know i think what people people gravitate to sublime for a lot of reasons a lot of reasons okay uh, there is first, first and foremost, the music, the music is incredible. I think also people love sublime because it's like um, it's like a means of discovery of other music because, because sublime and Bradley and the guys were so eclectic in their influences and wearing their influences on their sleeve and weaving things in and out of songs. um, They. They uh, they sort of left this like, you know, what is this? What is it like this? they, They allow their fans and listeners to go down this rabbit hole of their influences and discover that. So I think there's that aspect. It's kind of like, you know what it's kind of like? It's kind of like the way Quentin Tarantino borrows from so many different places. Quentin Tarantino, he, you know, takes from this and this and this and this, and he sort of weaves it together with his own style and flavor and you get something like kill bill or pulp fiction or reservoir dogs and you know it's the cultural references and that's what sublime does they you know they're they're sort of in touch with musical pop culture from all these different it's not pop culture it's subculture they're in touch with musical subculture from all these different places and they find a way to just sort of blend it fuse it together in this incredible fashion now they weren't the first to do this and we know this you know in my last show that i did about sublime we talked about fishbone and we talked about the bad brains you know there were other bands out there that sort of came before i mean even the clash which are mentioned in this documentary that we're about to speak about um but i think that's just part of the that is part of the appeal of sublime like again just doing all these things that's not new that's not like some hot take everybody knows that um the next thing i'm going to say though is not something i think people talk about enough or maybe explore enough i think what makes sublime so interesting outside of the music is the story. It's a story, man. Um, And it's about to be turned into a biopic. They're currently dramatizing the story of sublime and it's, there's great source material. The story is almost a mythology. If you will, it's almost, it's a, it's a tragedy, man. It's a tragedy of a guy who came from, you know, a well-off background, but, you know, felt this need to, you know, consciously take drugs and experiment with drugs until he became addicted to them. And then basically, you know, turned it, it, the whole thing turned into a a sort of a, it's just a matter of time, you know, um, Bradley couldn't grasp sobriety, couldn't get it. And, um, you know, kept using and you know what usually happens in those situations it winds up in three different ways jails institutions or death you know and so that's how the sublime story you know ends but the weird thing about sublime too is that you know it's also a story of sort of rebirth or afterbirth or aftermath because Right after the band ends, right after the band literally ceases to exist, the band ceases to exist by force the moment that Bradley takes his last breath. He's the heart and soul of the band. When that happens, the band ceases to exist. And from that point on, a different story begins. And that's a story of this, you know, thing that, like, basically, ostensibly was never going to come out somehow miraculously does make make it out and is able to be released and ends up selling millions and millions of copies it becomes you know um it breaks through into the mainstream and this had been a trend that and you got to excuse me i have a, a sore in my mouth i have like a Like behind my tongue, I have like this thing and it's, uh, I I was sick. It's like viral. So it's kind of hard to talk. So you have to excuse me. I'm trying to do a lot of talking when I really can't talk. So you have this, like, you have this trend that's kind of happening in the 90s, right? Like you have, um, you have these, you have these bands that are coming out of these sort of subcultures and then uh, breaking through into uh, mainstream music and selling just millions of copies, and you know, three examples like, I'm really you could say even four, three examples in particular, and all of them under the guise of alternative rock. You have Nirvana, Nirvana was the big one, right? Uh, followed by Dookie, which ironically happens right as Kirk Cobain dies, right? Kurt Cobain dies in 94, Nirvana ceases to exist, and then at the same time, Dookie is is released by green day and explodes in a similar fashion. And then, um, two years later, just as the band sublime dies, sublime self-titled explodes. And I guess you could say it happened as well with the offspring, the offspring. I think that happened a little bit later. I don't know when their big album. Came. I don't think it was in 94. I think it was later than 94. I think maybe it was 98. No, it couldn't have been 98. Cause that was the follow-up, Americana. Right it was ninety eight, ninety nine. So it had to happen. Maybe it was like ninety seven, ninety six. Uh, if somebody knows, please, uh, please go look that up and let me know. So you had offspring, and I guess you could say the last one really would be uh, Blink one eighty two. Right? Those were like mm, trying to think if there was anything else. Could you could you include the Red Hot Chili Peppers in that? I don't know because the Red Hot Chili Peppers kind of came from like you know an underground sort of s- scene and explode with blood, blood sugar, sex, magic, but not in the same kind of way. They weren't like, I don't know, it's not the same. It's not the same. At least it's not the same as these other bands, which kind of like fell into, you know, alternative music labels. So they went from these subcultures to all of a sudden um, being played in every bar across America, homogenized for all of America, that sort of thing. So that's Sublime's, that's the second half of Sublime's story, right? So you have these like two halves, the the life of the band and the afterlife of the band. Um, And the the tragedy, the hook of that after story is all these people are getting into Sublime. All these people are falling in love with this band. They're falling in love with this voice. And this dude isn't even alive anymore. This dude has died. He's died. Nobody even knows. The guys in the band, Bud and Eric, they they, they're like, okay, well, let's get something else together. And they get their, you know, the posse, the whole posse, the whole crew from from Long Beach. And, you know, they put together a new band. We talked about this in the last episode. You got Diet Brad. And Ross One is like the Diet Brad. He's like kind of like the, the centerpiece along with Opie, who designed the Sublime Sun And, uh, you know, and, and Miguel's there at first. And you got Jack, um, Jack who plays Rivers of Babylon with Brad on, 40 ounce, uh, Tim Wu, you have, uh, uh, Marshall Goodman and you have Bud, you've just, you've this, uh, and of course you have Eric, you know, and this is the, this is the, the remnants they're, they're trying to make their, the best out of a really, really bad situation and they can't, well, they do, they do, but just with limited success when compared I and mean, when you listen to right back, not right back, what's that song? Sunny Hours. And listen, I don't want to I don't want to like slam Long Beach Dub All-Stars. They were very good at what they did. It was never my thing. I was never big into them and, you know, it just wasn't I just never uh vibed with it. Um but, you know, that when you listen, when you listen to Right Back and you listen to that song, uh god, what's it called? Um when you listen to shit, what is it called? Uh Sunny Hours. Sunny Hours sounds to me like, it sounds like what I got redux. You know what I mean? They're like, how can we repackage what I got? It's almost kind of like, you know, and again, I don't want to like, I don't want to like slam, I don't want to slam the songwriting here, but it just sounds to me, which I, by the way, I found out recently that song, Sunny Hours, was co-written by none other than Fat Mike himself. Um, It it just sounds like, it sounds like a, a desperate attempt to, to trying to ape the sublime sound and get a hit as a result. So it doesn't feel uh, genuine, you know, or as genuine or I don't know, just it doesn't really work for me. But again, let me digress. Why do I bring up the first, the first part of the band and the second part of the band? It's very important because it seems that everybody kind of knows or has a gist of the first half of the story I mean, I guess even the second half through interviews and stuff, but the, the first half, we got something called stories, tales, lies, and exaggerations. And that came out in 98. And it's a great, you know what it is? It's just a, it's a documentary, but it's a very sort of casual hodgepodge of, of people in the sublime camp, just kind of generally talking about the the story. They tell the story And, you know, it's, it's pretty honest and you could tell things are maybe some things are left out, but you know, it's a pretty, you know, raw look. It's a pretty raw look at the band and, you know, and the title is perfect. Stories, tales, lies, and exaggerations. It's not promising to be the definitive documentary about Sublime. It's just, Hey, we're, this band isn't around anymore and we're reminiscing about it. That's kind of what it is. It's like, you're sitting around a campfire and you're just sort of like hearing just various tales. And, you know, everybody who's in this documentary is somehow connected to the band. And it's just, it's a who's who, if you are, if you are a big fan of sublime, then, you know, you know, a lot of these people, they're very familiar to you. You have like the Ziggins, you have guys from Falling Idols, you got um, Mike Watt from the Minutemen. Uh, you know, it's been years, decades even since I've seen stories tales lies and exaggerations. I have it right over there. In fact, I'm actually going to rewatch it now. Now that I've seen the 2019 doc, I want to rewatch it and just to better compare and contrast. I probably should have done that before I even hopped on here and started doing this um, this show, but whatever, it is what it is. Um, we've had enough trouble just trying to get this show up and running, and now here we are doing it. So, um, yeah, storytales, lies, and exaggerations. It does a great job at again, hey, sit around, sit around the campfire and hear stories about this band sublime. There's no, there's no like overarching narrative, it just sort of goes from thing to thing, and it doesn't really care. You know what it is? Stories, Tales, Lies, and Exaggerations doesn't really care whether you're familiar or not with the band. They don't care. You're either in the know or you're not in the know, and there's some stuff that you'll enjoy, and maybe there's some stuff you won't get because you just don't understand what it is. Stories, Tales, Lies, and Exaggerations leaves plenty of the stuff out. It's not definitive. It, It doesn't claim to be definitive, and it's not definitive. The Sublime documentary from 2019, however, in the synopsis on IMDb, I'm going to read it for you right now. This is what they say. Iconic California band Sublime fused reggae, punk, ska, dub, and hip hop into a genre defying new sound that electrified diverse audiences and airways in the mid-1990s. This definitive documentary charts their meteoric rise, tragic end, and lasting legacy, I would say that really that lasting legacy part is not not really true at all, because the movie basically, you know, spoilers, <laughs> Brad dies and the movie ends right after Brad dies. It's it's really kind of like um, you're I'm, I was kind of shocked that it just sort of it just sort of stops. The movie just sort of stops. Now, here's the thing. This doc is really, it's not all bad. It's, you know, there's, there's a lot of great stuff in it. There's a lot of interesting tidbits and factoids that I didn't know. And it was really great. I I learned a bunch of stuff watching it. There's a bunch of unseen photographs and and a bunch of unseen video that I'd never seen. So that was cool. I got something fresh and new from the documentary. However, however, again, going back to this idea that the sublime story really happens in two parts. It happens with the life of the band and then the life after the band and the, the, the big curtailing of success, this movie really only tells that first part of, or an overview. It's such a, it's such a general overview. Now who they got in the doc, that's, they got a lot. I mean, they got everybody, not everybody. They got a lot of incredible people. They didn't get everybody. And actually that's a point of contention that I want to bring up. And maybe you can say, Hey, you know, um, you're being too, you're scrutinizing this thing, you know, uh, any, any real fans, I mean, any casual fan will be perfectly happy watching this, but that's the thing. If you're going to call this definitive, then it's got to, it's got to definitively cover the full story. And it doesn't do that. Unfortunately, it doesn't do that. Now the whole story is only 90 minutes long. It's 93 minutes long. Okay. Um, I feel like this movie probably has a, first of all, all documentaries. This is my intro that got cut off because of the, 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 the uh, uh, my mic wasn't working. So after I take a sip of seltzer, I'm going to kind of go over that again about documentaries. Okay. Here's the thing about documentaries documentaries are, um, they are really good. Uh, they are really good vehicles for, uh, the telling of history and generally the problem with the telling of history is uh, it doesn't really always align and fit with uh, feature length narrative or feature length documentary. You know, if you want to re- if they want it to be really, really, really detailed, with this sublime story, it probably needed to be at least another half hour long minimum. And it probably to really be definitive probably needed to be closer to two and a half hours to truly encompass the narrative, you know? And so that leads me to think, and again, I'm saying this, I'm saying this from a point of view perspective of someone who is a filmmaker, I'm a filmmaker myself. And, you know, I, I just, I get the feeling, do I actually know? I don't actually know. I don't actually know, but I get the feeling that this um, that this doc probably would, had a much longer running time. How long? I don't know. You know, sometimes assemblies to movies can be hours and hours and hours and hours long. Four hours long, three hours long, five hours long. Look at the Justice League Snyder cut, the Snyder, uh, Zach Snyder's Justice League cut thing is friggin' four hours long, dude. How long is a Justice League movie? Two hours. Well, that's a little bit different story. It's more more complicated here. Uh, I just want to take a quick minute to shout out some people. Uh, we have Reed. Reed is in the uh, audience. He says, hey, he says, let's go, Jeff. Stoked to be here. Stephen Nash says, just FYI, the drummer and bass player are still playing shows of Sublime. Don't know who is singing. They're actually playing at the end of this month at the three-day festival in Redondo Beach. So that's a whole other story, Stephen. And I'm going to actually... FYI you my friend the the drummer and bass player are not actually doing that they there is a band called sublime with rome playing but bud is not in that band and eric is not playing bass for that band uh it's just the guy rome so this guy rome and uh you know has a band ironically featuring the bass player from no doubt tony canal um we used to you know be really good friends, really close with Sublime back in the day because no doubt. And Sublime did a lot of shows, they did tours together. Um, so ironically, your FYI is not really much of an FYI, and in fact, it's not that's not true. They're they're called Sublime with Rome, but but Bud, Eric, and Brad are in the band, dude, or they're not like you know. Eric is out, is 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 off, you know, uh off tour right now. Uh, I don't know what his deal is. I don't know what the status is. Um, it I agree, Sean. It really is insane that Universal has shelved it for four years, but I kind of understand why to an extent a little bit. Dan is here. Hey Dan. Dan says I've been a big Sublime fan since the 40 ounce days. I never got to see them live, though. Neither have I. Um, so yeah. Uh been dying to see this doc since i heard they were making it yeah all right so let's let's talk about the doc now let's actually talk about the doc that's the problem with the doc it feels like it was heavily heavily edited okay they've got a lot of great interviews who's interviewed in the documentary you've got bud bud is in the documentary you've got eric wilson in the documentary troy brad's widow she's in the documentary um you have uh 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 Noel, uh his dad. What the hell is his dad's name? Um crap. Uh they call him Papa Noel. Uh what the hell is his name though? Uh uh no John Noel. What the hell is his name? This is driving me crazy. The dad is in the the dad is in the dock, his mom is in the dock, Kelly, his sister is in the dock. Um Gwen Stefani is in the dock. Uh Tony Dumont from No Doubt is in the dock. Uh Tony, uh Sorry, Tom, Tom, DeBont DuBont, DuBont. What the fuck is his name? Whatever. I'm really bad with names here. See, this is where my <laughs> the people from No Doubt are in this documentary. OK, they're in the documentary. Jim Noel. Thank you. God, that was at the tip of my tongue. Jim Noel is 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 in the doc Um. I saw Long Beach Dub All-Stars. Yeah, we talked, we were talking about them a little bit earlier. We were talking about, I was expressing, and again, I'm not going to reiterate this all again, but I was just expressing how I feel like Sunny Hours really just feels like a desperate attempt to uh, sort of repackage what I got and get another hit. They did. They got another hit with it. So I don't know. In any case, um, who else is in the dock? All right. This was a big one. This was awesome. This gave me this. Like when I saw this, this gave me a lot of goodwill for this documentary. I was super stoked when I saw that fishbone. You had Angelo Moore and Norwood Fisher are both in the documentary. And the reason why that's so rad, the reason why that's so important to me is because those dudes were a huge influence on Sublime. And they're never mentioned. They're just never they're never really brought up, man. They never like the thing about Fishbone is they're a band's band, and bands love and revere them. The Chili Peppers reveal them. Sublime revered them. You know, so many people revered them, but like they never really got their due, but they were doing something very similar to what, you know, Sublime was doing. They were more ska than they were punk, but they were doing um, they were going from heavy metal and you know, punk rock to funk to ska, to even some reggae stuff. They were doing the same thing, man. And Sublime used to cover Party at Ground Zero. You could find it out there. There's a Sublime cover of Party at Ground Zero. It's pretty awesome. Uh, And you can kind of see, you know, when you listen to some of the stuff that Angelo's doing, uh, Fishbone Fishbone came uh, first, established themselves in 1979. So they predate Sublime by a good 10 years, man. Point being is they were bros with Sublime so and they were included in the documentary i that was a big plus for me so they're in the documentary um john phillips who was the manager he's in the documentary you had uh god who else was in that documentary you had miguel is in there for a few moments you have i mean they almost they have a lot of people now here's some glaring they have uh marshall goodman is in the documentary um Here's some glaring omissions in the documentary. And this is going to bring me back to that point about documentaries and, uh, you know, the documenting of history. And, you know, really the truth of the matter is, is a doc, all a documentary is it's, it's a history by the people telling the documentary, you know, so whoever's telling that documentary, who's, who's, who is it behind the documentary that is, you know, pushing a certain type of agenda, you know, uh, full steam ahead. Uh, here's the glaring omission for me. Again, the fact that there was like, you had no Mike Watt, you had no friggin' falling idols. Here's a big one. This is the big one that really had me just sort of shaking my head. Uh, n- there wasn't a single Ziggin, okay? The band wasn't even mentioned. The band wasn't even mentioned. You know, for any even casual Sublime fan who is familiar with the acoustic cover of Big Salty Tears, knows. That the Ziggins were kind of like the brother band to Sublime. The Ziggins and Sublime, they go way back. They were, they, they were uh uh tandem together, you know. So while yes, no doubt and sublime were also kind of like uh brother bands or brother-sister bands, like the ziggins were such an integral part. Of the sublime story mythology or whatever you want to call it, cast of players. Oh, Opie's in the dock, which is good. I'm glad Opie was in the dock, but they are so important. Todd Z Man, Todd Zulkins is in the dock. Um, the Ziggins are such an important part. You see the Ziggins plenty in stories, tales, lies, and exaggerations. They're they're there, they're all over the place, um, telling stories and, and whatnot. But the fact that they didn't have one of these dudes, not even just one. You know, as Dan is saying, Bert was was uh, Brad's best friend, man. But the point is, is that all those dudes were, were were tight with Sublime. In fact, you know, they completely glazed over Miguel. And that's another huge glaring omission that I want to discuss in a moment. But the, the way that Miguel first even kind of got to know the guys in Sublime was because he was in the Ziggins. And the Ziggins played shows with Sublime. And then Miguel said, hey, I need to record a band for my college project. Will you come down and we'll record? We'll start recording. And that's how the band even started to really get. That's how the band jumped from doing four track to like getting into their first studio and like actually laying something down. And, you know, again, I could do such a fucking deep dive on 40 hours of freedom. Like I could talk. I would love to talk about all the minutia of the, this album, and how it was made with such a punk rock spirit, like the way they did that. It's just such a what it's such a wonderful story. And you know, that's the thing about the Sublime Story. It's even though it was such a condensed period of time, there it's such a vast, deep, rich story. Like there's no way to, to sort of gloss over this. And that's what this documentary is for. It's for casual people who don't know the band. You know, they want to pop in for 90 minutes, and you can't call consider that definitive. The problem with the, the the sublime story and this documentary is that in order to do it right, in order to tell the story right, it really needs to be a mini-series. That's what it needs to do. Okay, that's what you need to do. The sublime story should start somewhere that there should be the origin episode. That kind of get that brings you up to the recording of 40 ounce to freedom, 40 ounces to freedom. Uh, then you go into 40 ounces to freedom. Right. And um, they sort of start gaining, uh, you know, people are buying 40 ounce to freedom out of the trunk. They're selling tapes out of the trunk. Bud leaves the band. And we're going to talk all about that in a second as well, because that, again, another huge emission from this um sort of documentary downplayed a lot of stuff was downplayed bud leaves the band and that's when you know a a series of drummers rolls in first you have i believe this is the order don't quote me on this i could totally be wrong again this is where i'm a little faulty a little patchy with my sublime history i believe it was marshall goodman right it was marshall goodman and then marshall goodman bounced because of the drugs and kelly vargas came in kelly vargas isn't even interviewed how could you have kelly vargas was there for an entire year of the band as their drummer how could you not or at least half a year how could you not interview kelly vargas man who did so many freaking live shows there's a there's a version of the band an era of the band where the band was expanded to a four-piece okay and you know it's interesting I had didn't realize that Sublime. This is something that the, the documentary taught me. Sublime was a four-piece before Miguel came into the band, you know. So here's the thing: after Miguel leaves the Ziggins, well, hold on, I'm getting ahead of myself. There was another member, there was a keyboard player. Okay. And then what happened was he leaves that they kind of push him out and they go back to just being this 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 three-piece again, right? Which is cool. I mean, it's kind of cool to like you know, learn little factoid like that. But when you think about the true fourth member of Sublime, it's not Lou dog. It's fucking Miguel, dude. So after wall, during wall, I don't know. This part's a little scratchy for me. I, I wish I had some clarification on this. Maybe read knows read in the comments. Might, might, uh, might be able to uh, clarify this for me. Okay. Um. Uh, friggin uh, shit. What was I just saying? Miguel, he's recording the band. uh uh, recording 40 ounces to freedom and at some point he starts playing live guitar he is kind of like i don't know i don't know if he's lead or if he's just second guitar or if he's rhythm guitar but he he fills out the live sound now the thing that's amazing about sublime is sublime is a band with such a powerful rhythm section with eric and bud that Brad wasn't even playing guitar half the time when they were doing live shit. Like if you listen to any of like those live shows, you listen to like memories or whatever, you know, just any, any live show with sublime, you know, and Brad's grab clearly, you you can't see it, but you can hear it. But Brad's probably got the mic like this and it's just bud and Eric on bass. And there's such a powerful rhythm section that the band can hold down a groove where it's just bass drums and friggin' vocals okay and they still sound amazing when you add miguel as a second guitar player a second guitar player into that equation you have an unstoppable band and you know there's video of this you can see the the no doubt release show album release show it shows them on stage it's it's not Four, they're not a four-piece; they're a five-piece because they got Todd Foreman, who was also interviewed. I'm glad Todd was there. But you know, when I think about like you know, and again, I, I don't know. Maybe Todd was around the whole time. Although Todd also has claimed interviews. He's like, when the drugs got crazy, much like Marshall Goodman, I also bounced. Meanwhile, you know, Miguel, he was there the whole fucking time. He was there through it all. You know, so you have five guys on stage. Five guys. That band was unfreaking stoppable when they had. Miguel playing guitar and he's doing samples live. He's thickening. He's backing up Bradley with the vocals. It's beautiful. They do this cover of D. I mean, they they just play DJs. It's fucking great. Everybody's locked in. Sure, the chemistry was, was phenomenal when it was, you know, just Eric, Bud, and Brad, the core that is Sublime. When we think of the core band, the band itself, yes, those are the dudes. But Sublime was bigger than that, man. It was bigger than that. And it included... Miguel, there are contracts there's, if you find them online, there are documents, maybe we'll, we'll pull it up. Maybe we'll pull it up um, uh, sometime for another show. There are, there are documents that, that stipulate that when uh, elephant levitation, that's that was his producing name. When they're in the studio, um, Miguel is a fourth member of sublime, but when they're live They're a three piece. I never understood that. I never understood why that happened. At some point, Miguel goes from being the second guitar player to just managing the band and, you know, engineering and just being like, he's kind of like almost like a Memphis Mafia type guy, like Z-Man, like Like maybe a little bit uh, above Z-Man's grave. Like Z-Man was kind of like the Memphis Mafia, you know. Elvis had like the the entourage, the guys that, you know, whatever. That was like Z-Man. And then you had like Miguel was more integral in the operation, you know, because, uh, you know, he was there for everything. He was, you know, he was booking the band and managing the band, but he was also in the studio, you know, uh, doing stuff. When they, it's my understanding, maybe Reed will know this in the comments one more time. Reed, okay, it's my understanding that there are whole versions of, of, of takes uh, from 40 Ounce to Freedom where Miguel is actually singing lead on certain songs. I'm not talking about Scarlet begonias. I'm talking about like other songs where they, you know, again, Miguel was more involved from a band standpoint, in addition to producing and engineering the project. And he was singing lead on stuff, you know? So this idea of this idea of having like, like Miguel as like this integral part. If you go listen to Mexican live shit, I think it's called, it's when they like went down to like the, the, the Baja coast or whatever. And they're just playing like on a beachfront. And that's another video that has uh, Miguel. And that's like really sloppy, loose jams. But even still with Miguel there on second guitar, it just, it just fills out. He just fills it out, man. He just fills it out. You know, the problem with some of this information that I remember when I used to do deep dives on Sublime, that's a problem with the internet. A lot of it's gone. So that thing that I just said about 40 Ounce to Freedom with, you know, alternate takes with Miguel singing lead. I remember reading that somewhere. I have no idea where I read it. Um, could it not be, totally not be true. I just remember that. The point being is that Miguel was this super integral piece. In this documentary, he is... He, he comes on a, only a couple of times his role is so incredibly diminished and it's so it's a, it's egregiously disrespectful in my opinion to miguel i really 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 feel like the dude should have i mean he should have i mean the dude was like the dude could have narrated the fucking documentary you know because here's the thing about Here's the thing about Eric. Eric doesn't really, I don't know, man. Eric seems to be a man of few words. He doesn't really, he, does, he doesn't really say too much in the doc either. The person who speaks the most of, of everybody who was like really there is Bud. Bud seems to be, you know, driving everything. And the truth of the matter is dude, like, yes, Bud was there for the whole duration, but like, you know, Bud wasn't even, Bud didn't even drum or write. On most of the 40 ounce of freedom songs. I just want to say I'm not diminishing, Bud in any way, shape, or form. I mean, he's like a cornerstone of Sublime. The point being that like it just feels like it feels like there are so many other players that were so integral to that that era that are just sort of pushed aside in this documentary. That's how it feels while watching it. You know what I mean? Um, it's a bummer. It's a fucking bummer. Um, You know, Miguel is diminished to like being a hustler who played a couple of live shows with us, you know, instead of being like literally the fourth leg of the table. You know, that kind of that kind of blew my mind. And again, Marshall Goodman, if you look at the credits of this documentary, I went to the credits as I was watching the the credits roll. Do you know how many songs Marshall Goodman is credited as co-written with Brad? Marshall co-wrote all the songs that bud doesn't play on 40 ounce to freedom. Marshall pretty much writes on all those songs, not every single one of them, but most of them. Okay. So like, I mean, again, that's, I would say that's a pretty integral piece of the recording legacy of sublime. So it's like sublime was so much more. And then really when you look at like um, the way that they talk about Robin the hood, and what we know from Robin the hood. And this, there's, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's kind of implied. I, I will say, I did appreciate, they did kind of imply like a lot of stuff without saying it. Um, And I can understand, look, this movie is being made in the cooperation with the cooperation of Jim Noel and Troy and Bud and Eric. So on some level, politics come into play. And this is what I was, again, this is what I was referring to at the beginning, the cutoff beginning when when we were talking about the um uh documentaries and how documentaries work and documentary agendas work when you're making a documentary that's in cooperation with the subject themselves there are stipulations and politics that come into play and that's goes back to what i was saying about bud again No disrespect to Bud, like, really. And again, I don't want to make it sound like his role is diminished in any way. I mean, he was a fucking one-third of Sublime, okay? Like, straight up. But I get the sense it feels like people are flexing and throwing their weight around with the cut of this movie. Now, did did the directors have final cut on this movie? I don't know. It's very possible that they did not. And people who are either who were either in the band or related to the band ended up having more of a say in who gets the final cut. The the rule of thumb with what Bud played on Forty Ounces of Freedom, anything that's on Jaw won't pay the bills is Bud because Jaw won't pay the bills gets folded into Forty Ounces of Freedom. Basically, Forty Ounces of Freedom is an expansion of Jaw won't pay the bills. They just kept adding and adding and adding songs, and all the songs that they added feature um marshall goodman on them let me go to the comments real quick before we continue um bert was his best friend yeah we saw it uh dj product aka doug Boyce, uh old dj for head pe was really close friends with bradley too um doug laid some scratches on robin the hood his he's in stories tales i think that dude is also in this documentary because they talk about I, they talk about him bringing his turntables to the crack house, the secret, the secret tweaker pad where Brad recorded um, all the stuff that wasn't from the demo tape for Epitaph. In fact, they had fucking Mister Brett from Bad Religion is in the dock. I mean, that was a great get. You know, they have all the they have lots of great players, but they again, there are so many gross omissions. But this guy having this DJ was they didn't say that he was the guy from head p e though. So I don't know if it was him or not. But, um, you know, one thing that I really loved about the documentary, the again, I could talk for hours about Robin the Hood, literally for hours about it. Robin the Hood is like a glorified mixtape. They took a bunch. They took seven or eight songs that they had done in a studio that were technically supposed to be demos for a potential. Recording contract that they might have had with Epitaph and that never went down. I gotta tell you, if they had signed with them, that would have been pretty solid too. That would have been a real interesting uh sort of thing to happen. They probably would have been on all those punkarama compilations, you know. Who knows? Maybe they would, maybe Brad would still be alive if uh, if if they had I don't know. That's that's a crazy what well, how would changing record labels change that? I don't know, I don't know. That's crazy. Um, but the thing. Oh, shit, I got law. Oh, yeah. They show a sketch of the layout of the secret tweaker pad, dude. And it was so fucking rad to hear them talk about. So, like, that's the thing. They, they sort of stop off at various points in the history, but they're just not detailed enough. And again, it's not like you can throw the kitchen sink into anything that's 93 minutes long. But it just felt like there was so much. I was so thirsty as a, as a Sublime fan to learn learn about this time in the band that like, you know, and it seems like Robin the Hood was like this weird. That's when Brad was at his worst with the drugs, like really, really bad, obviously before he killed himself. Oh, damn it. You're not supposed to say that on YouTube um, before that happened. Uh, you know, you know, the other thing, too, is, man. They really, in, in almost everything about Sublime, nobody really ever mentions the fact that like Brad was smoking crack too. You know, he's not skinny from the heroin as much as he's skinny from the, the speed and the crack and the meth and whatever else that, you know, that they're up to. Um, That's when he's like really skinny and so close to death. But he's also like, they describe in the doc, like, you know, how he was like a mad scientist in the secret tweaker pad, you know, putting this together, Robin, the hood is an incredible, incredible. It's an incredible piece of work. It really, really is, but it's not, it doesn't, it's not as cohesive. It's not a cohesive album. The way 40 ounce to freedom was, or the self-titled album was, you know, it feels more like a, like a hodgepodge Reed says Um, Kelly Vargas also jumped out of the crowd and played at the LB chili cookoff in 95 when Bud was late and didn't show up. Is that that was that when he uh busted his ribs skateboarding or something? So even then, Kelly always came in the clutch. By the way, another thing that was not mentioned in the doc that I really wish was uh they didn't talk about Raleigh Theodore Sakers. And for those of you who don't know, it's actually Kelly's brother, Matt Vargas, who um who taped Raleigh or he had gotten a hold of the tape. I don't know if he was the one who who worked in the place, or if he had gotten hold of the tape and brought it to the guys, but that's the, the origin of the of the Raleigh Theodore Sakers stuff. Uh Reed says, Yep, Miguel uh played guitar and filled out the sound with Brad from 91 to 93, and even played from the soundboard sometimes. I didn't know that. What what okay when when was he playing from the soundboard was that after 93 can see him at the Fiji Islander Santa Barbara show singing pan bread whoa that a week before Brad died so right yes that was when they're on that string of shows after they got married they're trying out self-titled songs and um i guess he was still doing stuff as late as then miguel played most of the solos on the album anyway For example, we're only going to die on 40-ounce solo. He did the Santeria solo, what I got solo, all Miguel and more, much more of a technical player than Brad. That is in direct conflict of what Bud says with Paul Leary when they're talking about Santeria for Rolling Stone. See, again, it's like, you know, just goes to show that people like to, you know, history gets rewritten by you know, <laughs> by people that happens. Um, Mike used to book the band using a zine called book your own fucking life that listed the venues, DIYs, dive bars, and their phone numbers before email. I'm sure that exists. He even rapped on the original version of get out. Yes. Okay. So before, um, before get out was on the secondhand smoke, the remix version the original version on the early versions of 40 ounce to freedom had a, had get out as the second track after waiting for my Ruka. And yes, there's a, there's a whole rap verse that was cut out because underneath it, that was the lemon, the lemon song by Led Zeppelin and they threatened to sue sublime. So they had to cut it out and remix, remix that track. But that is, yes, that is, uh, um, (laughs) that's Miguel, man. Uh, Spanky says, uh, Bud only played two songs on Forty Ounce of Freedom live at Ease and Badfish. That is not true. Bud also plays on. Bud plays on anything that's on jaw. Won't pay the bills. If it's on jaw, won't pay the bills. That's Bud. Um, yeah, he busted his ribs later on the Warp Tour. Summer Chili Cookoff was in April. Oh, I did not know that. Uh, the full band songs on Robin the Hood were recorded at West Beach Recorders, which is the Epitaph Studio, right? exactly now those were again those were demos that they had gotten they got to record there for free those were demos and you know brett from from epitaph and bad religion ultimately passed because he he had heard how drugged out they were and you know was sober at least that's what he claims um favorite sublime song uh i don't know jody ramona i mean i love them all Yeah, see, Spanky Bravo is agreeing with me, saying that Brad played the Santeria solo. That's what I had thought as well. Um, But then they were re-recorded by Marshall with Miguel, maybe. Maybe that's what happened. I don't know. Who knows? Who knows? Uh, In any case, where were we? Where were we in before we got through all those comments? I was just in the middle of going on and on. You know, it's it's, uh, sticky when you start talking about It's sticky when you, you go off on tangent and then you try to wrap back around to what you were, what you were talking about. So I think it's a good time to mention that the official sponsor for the us channel is riotstickers.com. If you need stickers to be printed, go to riotstickers.com. We have a special deal with them. Uh, The proud sponsor here at the us channel, you can get a thousand stickers. That's right. You heard me correct. A thousand stickers for $79. When you use the deal down in the description below, that's uh ride stickers.com backslash from us F R U M E S S go there. That's the only place that you can get this deal for that cheap. You are not going to find a cheaper deal than $79 for a thousand stickers. These stickers, let me tell you something about these stickers. These stickers are printed on vinyl, makes them waterproof and they have a UV coating, which protects them very well from the sun. Uh, you're not going to find a better deal. They do everything, man. They printed this banner. See that banner over there? Uh, they, they just, they print, they print buttons, T-shirts, everything. Why, why am I talking? Let me just let the song do the talking for me. And then we'll be right back with more of our review about the sublime, uh, the sublime documentary. all right and we are back we are talking about sublime the documentary and all things sublime sublime in periphery and whatnot and just to give you a uh a, a quick sidebar if you are i'm gonna jump over to the danzig misfits sam haynes side of things if you uh like all of the danzig interview stuff i do the 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 third part of john the john christ interview that i've been doing with uh la guns guitarist um uh, Ace von Johnson uh, is available now for early, early premiere. If you're a YouTube member or a uh, Patreon, check out my whole Patreon archive. Got tons of videos that you're not going to find here on the channel. We are, we are closing in on 2000 videos on the channel proper. Actually, it's like probably 1500 that are public. And we have there are hundreds of videos that are in the uh, the archive that you cannot see. So um, uh, wade through the pools. You know, pop your head in their feature length films, all sorts of stuff that that you can uh, you can find there in the um, the the Patreon. Uh, You can see my second feature length film in there, uh, uh, gouge away, although it's the inferior version. uh, But that's coming to Blu-ray very soon anyway. So whatever. In any case, let let us um, let us continue. Let's go to some of these comments before we, we we move on. Brad probably Reed says Brad probably did play the Santeria solo, but a lot of the shit was Miguel. There you go. Um, Yes, Aaron, Riot stickers are the bomb. Uh, So Reed, yes, that is the singer of less than Jake doing the theme song for Riot stickers. That is absolutely um, that is absolutely the singer from less than Jake. And uh, I, I guess he knows Sharpie Riot, who is the sponsor of this channel. Um, what is the doc call? I never even heard it. It's called Sublime. It came out in, well, it, it premiered in 2019 and it is since not available. Um, yeah, Spanky, I, I, I yeah, it's, I, I was blown away when I first saw that about the, the drums on 40 Hunches of Freedom. So it's like, you know, Marshall Goodman is a huge part of, of the, when you think about the fact that he drummed on a huge majority of their studio recordings, like a whole ton of them. Uh, it really sort of like re, you know, reclarifies some things. Um, so again, yeah, it was, you know, that's the thing. The problem with the this this documentary and the story, the story is so vast. It needs a miniseries, man. Like I said, it would the first episode would be just the beginnings. It would go up to forty ounces of freedom. Second episode would be forty ounces of freedom. Brad gets into drugs. You know, Miguel's in the band and out of the band, whatever. The third, the third episode would be um, Bradley nearing death from drugs, as well as the recording of Robin the Hood, and uh, eventually that would end with getting signed uh, by Gasoline Alley and MCA. And then the fourth episode would be uh, Warp Tour, you know, uh, kind of getting sober for a little bit, uh, the birth of the, of, of Jacob. Um the recording of self-titled, and uh it would end with Bradley's death. And then the fifth, the fifth part of the miniseries would be um everything, oh, the whole aftermath, everything Long Beach Dub, All-Stars, the album blowing up, Sublime with Rome as like an afternoon, like all that stuff, like all that stuff should come after, man. Um again, you could do 90 minutes on the the after bradley dies alone you could like that's how much there is to tell you know um i don't know man it just for it to end where it ends in this thing is just a real sort of downer it just doesn't it doesn't work it doesn't friggin work it doesn't it doesn't click Uh, It was very interesting to, they had a member uh, who was a a childhood friend who was in the band sloppy seconds and the name sloppy seconds. I didn't realize this this is what they say in the doc. The name sloppy seconds was really supposed to be sort of uh, a tip of the hat to the fact that they were really incorporating, they were doing in sloppy seconds, kind of like what they were doing in sublime, incorporating a lot of different, you know, influences and things. So the idea of sloppy seconds were, We're, we are coming in and and doing, you know, uh, putting all this stuff, putting all this stuff together in a pot. Um, and so it was cool to hear from that guy, the, the, he was the singer of that band. Um, and you know, so like they, they got some, they got some interesting people, but again, glaring omissions. Where is Kelly Vargas? Where are the Ziggins? Um, we had Paul Leary, Paul Leary was there. Now here's, what's interesting. Here's kind of a little bit of a smoking gun. You can see where the slightly stupid guys, where are the two bros from Slightly Stupid, like they, they, man, they were there for a little bit. They, they should have had some screen time. Um, this was produced. Uh, the the main producer was Dave Kaplan, who was a co-manager of Sublime with John Phillips. John Phillips was kind of like the main you know manager as far as i knew and john phillips's uncle ran mca you know uh that's how he you know he he had an ear they told this story i didn't realize this sublime was almost uh, signed to atlantic records and brad went in with his contract back to mca after he had stuck these stickers on the bmw And basically, like finagled them to sign, and so that he could get you know a bigger you know a bigger advance or get a more of an advance. Here's what's really upsetting, though. I think they do a great disservice by sort of you know they're trying their best to make it more about the. I I know I've I've read a couple other things. They wanted to tell a story that wasn't so focused on death and wasn't so focused on the tragedy, and that it was more about the band itself, but they didn't even really do that because they glazed over so much of the history. Like if you're going to have 90 minutes and I felt like the pacing was going along pretty well. And then they started to hyper-focus on these like little things that we already kind of had heard. Like they're hyper-focusing on, you know um, instead of focusing on the history, they're hyper-focusing on the particular recording of certain songs. And I'm kind of going, You there's so much for you to be talking about right now, why are you focusing on what I got? We all know the, you know the thing about what I got. They had half pint. That was cool. They had half pint in there as well. Uh, I would have liked to seen some interviews with uh, uh, HR or some of the guys from the Bad brains that would have been rad. You know HR HR had Sublime as their backing band when he put out his solo album called Charge, which is a really great solo record and in fact Sublime covers shame in the game which is an HR song. Um, but they backed, they were the backing band when HR needed a backing band. And uh, there's, you know, I guess there's tons of recordings. There's a whole bunch of live recordings of them backing HR. Pretty fucking cool. Um, again, all sort of like glossed so much stuff glossed over, uh, particularly the drugs, the drugs are alluded to, but, they're so far in the background. And the problem with the, the story of sublime is because the, the band ended that the way that they did drugs need to unfortunately be a part of the story. They they don't just need to be a part of the story. They need to kind of be a focal point of the story. They are the antagonist of the story. It's like there are these two competing factors, the drug use and you know, unbridled creativity compounded with entrepreneurial spirit, DIY, punk rock, grassroots touring. You know, the thing about Sublime is they didn't, it's like, they're not industry plants. Everything that they did, they earned themselves. They did it by just being really good and going out there and selling their cassettes out of their car. I mean, they are, they're independent operation the money that they were making from selling 40 ounce of freedom it's insane what they were doing um uh, miguel says at one point miguel says at one point we we had ordered something along the lines of we had they had they had ordered 20 000, 20, 000 orders for sublime uh 40 ounce of freedom and or, or had pre-sold but they they had pre-sold but they didn't even have the money to something like they didn't have the money to like repress or something they were in such demand i mean you have to realize think about that for a minute Twenty thousand units independently here's the thing you know back in the day to really be a success you had to sell millions of records millions of records you know selling hundred thousands of records would be you know good but what really sets you apart from everybody else was that you had to cross over the million the million unit mark, okay In today, if someone were to sell a hundred thousand units, it would be mind-boggling because everything's changed. But back then, the idea of selling 20,000 copies, 30,000, 40,000 copies of your independently recorded album out of the trunk of your car, when you don't have major label support is unfucking paralleled, okay? It's unbelievable. It's like it's mind boggling to consider what they were able to do. This whole aspect of their of what they did completely glossed over, apart from this one soundbite. You know, I just, I, I just like, I, I'm just so like kind of disillusioned that like that they glossed over so many of these things. And again, from a, from a story, from a storytelling filmmaker standpoint, you know, with the powers that be are like, hey, deliver us a 90 minute doc. And you got you gotta make cuts. And so when you consider, does this story tell the story of sublime in 90 minutes? I would say, yes, it does. And it does a good job of it. Okay. That's the truth. Even with all of the glaring omissions that I'm talking about as a diehard fan, the truth of the matter is they do a great job pacing-wise, hitting all the pieces to get to that fir- the end of the first half of the story that I was talking about when Brad dies. But like I said, for the story to really be do do to do it justice, you need to talk about the drugs. And you need to talk about it in detail. The reason why Bud left the band the first time is because he was on heroin. He was on heroin. He went to a rehab and it was like a Christian rehab. And they were like Christian, because he talks about it in, in stories, tells lies and exaggerations. something a little bit about it. He alludes to it. And what happened was uh, he left. He basically he was like out of the band. And the way that he tells the story in Sublime 2019, it's so it's so disingenuous to me. It's so, and maybe it was more detailed. Maybe it was edited that way to make it more glossed over. Because again, the family is like, Hey, we don't want this to be all about drugs. So they did their best to kind of gloss over it. Fair enough. Fair enough. If that's the case, but a part of me just feels like, what, how are you not going to like, how are you not? How are you going to glom over that? You know, because that's what leads to Marshall coming into the band. It's just so, it's so important. Um, And then later, you know, they completely gloss over the detail. Uh, There's a couple of glaring details with the drugs that they gloss over. One is that, you know, they're sort of wishy-washy. If you read the book Crazy Fool, which is why I feel the way that I feel so much, because I feel like Crazy Fool might be one of the, it's really troubling to read. It's a troubling read. It's really sad. It's really like a disastrous like read in the sense like it's just it's it it'll gut you like it's really sad. It's a harrowing tale of drug addiction, is what it is. But you know, a band that's literally going to be pulled down by by drug addiction. Um, but you know, there are, there are details that are integral to the story of Sublime, and one of those details is the fact that fucking Bud not only was he there in the room with brad but he fucking tied off with him man that he tied off with him he he, they they got high together but uh bud did heroin with brad when he died and i feel like it's a it's almost like it's it's a confusing detail because you're kind of like it doesn't fit with the narrative the narrative is we wanted him to be off drugs so that way we could you know be the best band that we could be but the reality is is life is fucking complicated people are complicated people do conflicting things the idea that bud knew that brad had such a fucking drug problem but yet like got high with him anyway because he used to be a fucking heroin addict too it's like it's fucking heavy it's hard how do you tell that in a documentary so i guess When I think about that out loud, like as I'm thinking about it, I guess it makes sense. Like, hey, we can't this is too complicated for us to like fit into 90 minutes, but it's also doing a disservice to the story, man. And the truth and the truth was that, you know, they talk about that suitcase is kind of like of of legend, you know, the, the suitcase, the drug suitcase that Brad Got a peek or something, or was offered drugs out of that suitcase, and he held on to them. They held on to those drugs, and the next night they didn't. He didn't do them, or maybe he did a little bit of them, and he wanted to tie off one last time. And the thing was that um, he had been sober for a little bit off of heroin, and the stuff that he had was not the typical heroin that he was used to, and. He took too much and he died. It's a common story. It's a common story that's only been made more common with the, you know, advent of, of fentanyl really. Um, So I think it's kind of crazy to gloss over that. I feel like that is, you know, um, it's an important detail. One thing that I really want to, that I do want to point out that I thought was really great that they, that they added, you know, that they, that they, that they added to the friggin' doc Was the fact that, and this is something that they talk about in crazy fool as well. You know, Eric, Eric lost a friend prior to Brad. Eric lost another friend to heroin overdose. He was fully, he had been fully traumatized by drug addiction and drug overdose in the past. And now he was watching Brad go down that same path. And what I didn't know until I was watching this documentary is that Eric like tried to intervene in 95. At some point he tried to intervene, like maybe late 95 or something when Brad was really bad, you know, during the recording, I guess of the self-titled record is like Er Eric and Brad were, were, were not talking. Brad wouldn't talk to Eric. They had a falling out, you know? And so like, that's something that I didn't know at all. So like, it's interesting how like you know how that knowing that like sort of really colors my understanding of the history in the band so it's interesting how like they would include that detail but they don't include the fact that bud was the bud was the one fucking getting high with him the last time you know i've heard bud tell that story a few times and you know in interviews and stuff and i feel like The last time, you know, again, assuming that they used all of it and maybe there a lot, there was a lot of stuff on the cutting room floor. I feel like that was I feel like it was not it was not truthful. It was not full. I'm not saying that Bud was not being truthful. I'm saying that the edit was not truthful to the story. And, you know. Opie had a really, you know, Opie has one of the best moments in the whole doc if you ask me. You know, he he really sort of breaks down at the end like talking about Brad and he like talking about how like, you know, Brad should be a reminder to not do heroin and not glorify drug use and this that and the other. And um I feel like like that right there like that that's like the crux of the message, but you only get it's only powerful. It's only has the proper impact when you like hear the whole complicated story, you know, cause that's the thing about Bradley Noel. When I was younger, I used to like really idolize this guy, you know, not for the drug use, but like, I don't know how to put this. Like, you know, when someone dies, it sort of canonizes them as like a saint, you know, look at John Lennon, look at any of them, Jim Morrison, they become like, they become like legendary, you know, they become these like mythological figures that are almost like infallible. But the reality is, is that they were fucking human. Like, and Brad, Brad, Noel was kind of like a contradiction in so many ways. You know, he was the super, uh, he was, he came from a well-off family, you know, family of divorce, but you know, the well-off, uh, lots of opportunity, um, this, that, and the other. And sort of like, almost like wanted to dive into the gutter. And here's what I mean when I say the gutter, it's almost like he wanted to live this different kind of life, a more bohemian life than what he came from. That's really what I'm trying to say. That's what it really is like a bohemian life. And part of bohemian life is drug use. You know, when I think a lot about of sublime songs and like the subject matter, you know what I'm who I'm honestly reminded of Something another thing that 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 both Sublime and and the Misfits have in common. I'm reminded of Charles Bukowski. If anybody's familiar with Charles Bukowski and his poetry, he was like known as this gutter poet. And you know, in the documentary, this was something I was not aware of. That Brad was like super into William Burroughs. There was another. He was a beat poet who who, who was doing heroin until he was 80 years old. He's revered by all the punk rockers from New York city, everybody wanted to do heroin with William Burroughs. It was like a, a rite of passage to do heroin with him. He was, you know, this guy, he was, like I said, he was a, he was a writer um, who, who once, who killed his wife doing the William tell trick. And then he moved down to Mexico. He like shot and tried to shoot an apple off her head. And he ended up blowing her away. Um, And, you know, it was a a habitual, I mean, really, uh, was a drug user till the day he died, you know, heroin addict till the day he died. And like, these are the people that like Brad, you know, as they say in the doc that he worship. But I also get a sense, like when you look at lyrically, what Brad is writing about, like there's so much Bukowski in, in it. It's he's writing about like, he's, he's writing about like, um fuck, what's it called? Like, like, you know, like seedy life you know what i mean look at like look at a song like mary or pool shark or freeway time in county jail or you know just any of those songs man even even april 29th 1992 he's just he's writing about like he he's just writing about like the ugly side of life not ugly i don't know if ugly is the right word He's just, he's trying to write about this thing, you know, this thing that all writers kind of write about and he, you know, and he pulled drugs into the mix. It's almost like, you know, anybody, he, it's like he purposely sought out to do heroin from my understanding, you know, they always call it like he was doing like the heroin experiment. It's like, he sought this shit out, you know, it's just so interesting to me. Um, So it's interesting how people like, you know, Brad, now that he's dead and gone, he can do no wrong in anybody's eyes. But like the reality was, was he was a human being who was very, who did a lot of sort of, you know, like, for instance, there's, there was a story. I don't know if this was on Reddit or whatever. There was a story about how during those riots, April 29th, 1992, Brad was like, Brad was one of those, Brad was out there rioting. And that there were these people who were guarding their their business on the roof. And Brad and some other people were like waiting for them to leave so that they could like go and like, you know, um, uh, rob the place or something. Again, this is a, an antidotal story, so I don't know if there's any truth to that. But I just find it so interesting that like, you know, how how, you know, he could come. He comes from like this rich sort of family life. And you know, has all these opportunities, but yet like he's it's like he's purposely trying to just lead this different life. I don't know if that makes any sense. Um, but yeah, so it's like drugs are such an integral part to the sublime story, and they're not thoroughly represented in the way that they needed to be. I mean, sure, they're mentioned, they're they're mentioned plenty, they're not, it's not like they're not mentioned, but I mean. The story is a story of the story of sublime is a story of drug use. That's the reality for as much as people love the music. And again, it's awesome that they focused on the positive stuff. And I'm glad that they did, but like it wasn't, it didn't tackle all of it. And that's what I'm, you know, when you're going to call your documentary a definitive documentary, like that's super fucking important to do. It's super important that you mention that, bud did heroin with brad the night he died it's super important that you mention that eric you know eric had a friend who died of a drug overdose you know like all of that stuff i wish they had kind of looked more at uh crazy fool the book like i really do you know in 94 when brad was at his worst uh jim and janie janie was uh was brad's stepmom they were like they were getting ready for, they were bracing for his death, man. They had already, they had already kind of accepted, at least according to the book, they had accepted that Brad was going to die all as early as 94. This was before, this was before he had, you know, had a kid with, with, uh, with Troy, you know, I mean, like he was, he was on the way out. He was he was bad. They briefly allude to it. Kelly talks about how Brad was locked out of the house; he wasn't allowed in the house. I mean, the stories in 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 Crazy for are harrowing. And again, so when I watch this sort of what when, when I'm watching Sublime 2019, I feel like I'm getting a very sanitized, squeaky clean version of the truth. And the problem with the documentary is. It's not supposed to be fiction. It's supposed to be reality. And so, if you're gonna tell me a true story, then tell the true story. Especially when it's a parable. And in this case, it's a parable is don't do drugs because they will kill you. You know, um, that's what makes that's what makes the story so interesting. That's what that's what elevates the sublime story and makes a story to be told. Now they're doing the biopic. To talk about the biopic for a minute. And I, I don't know who's behind the biopic. And I'm a little, you know, uh, apprehensive about it because, you know, it's really hard to do biopics. You know, it's really hard to do biopics about musicians. It's easier to do biopics about his, historical figures. You know why? Because they're not people that we see in movie posters or on TV all the time, who, whose faces we're not as familiar with. In fact, there are some biopics, the people we never even know what they looked like in real life. So when we see somebody, portraying them it's easier for us to suspend our disbelief when you have so like why have they never done a biopic on the Beatles it would be literally impossible you know why because you're gonna look at John Lennon and go that's not John Lennon like they have done stuff they've done nowhere boy and uh, what is it uh, backbeat or whatever they've done some stuff but like you can never you can never definitively do a bio biopics about musicians, it's just really hard. I think Val Kilmer was able to do it pretty well as Jim Morrison. You know, there are exceptions, but generally it's really hard. I don't know how the fuck they're going to do Brad Noel. I don't know how they're going to do these guys. That CBGB's movie was, I mean, that was a re- that was tough. Taylor Hawkins as Iggy Pop. Iggy Pop is Iggy Pop, motherfucker. How are you going to try and convince me that Taylor Hawkins is Iggy Pop? this is supposed to be kind of like a goof. Joey Ramone is Joey Ramone. You know, uh, what's that guy, uh, the, the, the comedian, he's going to play Joey Ramone. That's not going to work. That's not going to work. You can't, it's impossible. It's, you know, Tina Turner, that was a pretty good exception. That was a pretty good exception. When, uh, Angela Bassett did Tina Turner, that worked. It's generally really hard now. One of the best biopics out there. It's not really a biopic. It's more true crime. Um, Has anybody ever seen Lords of Chaos? That's directed by the guy who did Bathory. He was the drummer from Bathory. Bathory, Bathory, the Norwegian black metal band. That guy is the guy I want to do the Sublime biopic. He's actually doing a biopic about Gigi Allen, which I am very interested in seeing. We were talking about Gigi Allen um, a few weeks ago on the channel. I want to see that dude. I want to see that dude do a uh, do the Sublime biopic. I think he and you know what—that's something that you call it stories, tales, lies, and exaggerations, right? Because that's cause essentially the 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 title card after Lords of Chaos. It's like this. It, the, there's like a thing that says like uh, this is a story of truth, lies, and everything that really happened. Something like that. And I feel like that's the only way that you're going to like properly dramatize the sublime story. Pete Davidson. Thank you. Spanky Pete Davidson. He's not going to be fucking Joey Ramone. Yes, I agree. The 94 to 96 DVD is pretty rad. Um, Angus says when I lived in Lawrence, Kansas uh, being a cashier at a newsstand, I would communicate with Burroughs briefly monthly while purchasing cigarettes and guns and ammo magazine. I didn't know he lived in Lawrence in Lawrence Kansas. Wait, wait, you you would see him or you d- this was like by like like uh, letters like like r- written correspondence. Dan says I lived in Long Beach back in 83 84. I like to think I ran into Brad at some point. Him and Snoop, haha. I lived on La, La Jara Street. You know Dan, I don't know if you were here when we did the other episode. But, like, isn't it interesting that, like, the Misfits and Sublime are kind of like these two cult bands, like Lodi on the East Coast and Long Beach on the West Coast. They kind of have, like, a similar, like, you know, mythology and cult status surrounding them. It's very, very interesting. Crazy White Boy is a big Burroughs fan, by the way. And he knows Charles. Uh, that's a spendy book these days. I'm guessing you're talking about uh, Crazy Fool. Uh, hold on. I'm, I'm just going back up here in the comments. Uh, uh, Reed says, Yes, yeah, Spanky Bravo. That was the first I had heard of them, uh, re recording Bud's tracks with Marshall. Um, I didn't know that they what else did they re record with? Wait a minute, what did they re record? Hold on a second, wait, what? I thought anything that's anything that is, job ja won't pay the bills is bud and anything that is is uh, anything else is Marshall Goodman yeah I misunderstood something Marshall said in an interview I have to go back and listen to it <laughs> anti flag with Rome uh, Reed says Marshall's sister Ruth Goodman R.I.P. was in sl- right she played saxophone in sloppy seconds and that's how Marshall met Brad at a party when he was DJing and spinning uh, Rockberry Jam by L.A. Dream Team Blaine Kaplan was the co-manager. Okay, I stand corrected. Thank you, Reed. Blaine Kaplan was the co-manager. Dave Kaplan was the surf dog records down in San Diego and completely unrelated to Blaine. Thank you for clarifying that. I did not, I, I, I misunderstood that. I thought he was because it says in the documentary, it says that Dave Kaplan was the co-manager of Sublime. That's what it actually says. Uh 322 Dan says. I think I heard fat Mike owns the white tour van. Uh, I think I saw a video of it at Mike's house. The stories that van holds. Oh yeah. If that, if those walls could talk spanky says, man, after all this time, man, after all this time, the fans have waited for a definitive well-made sublime doc. It's a bummer that they left out so many crucial people and details. Listen, spanky. I, I think that anybody who who has seen this doc or watches this doc and is either a casual sublime fan or just wants a general overview with some interesting tidbits will be will be plenty satisfied. But for me, for us who who want who know the bigger picture story, it is it's it's an injustice, man. It's an injustice that it ends with Brad dying. That story needs to go on for another needs to cover all of 1997, man. The story needs to end with the with the with the the smashing success and them ultimately deciding they can't be a band anymore. And they completely don't even acknowledge, they don't even talk about the the, the decision to not be sublime anymore. Like it's crazy to me. Reed says uh, the van is owned by a man named Peter Sanders out of the San Francisco Bay Area. He was storing it with Fat Mike for a bit. He was gonna put it at the punk rock museum, but it didn't work out. That's exactly where that van belongs at the punk rock museum, in my opinion. Uh, that makes sense. Mike pointed it out. Never, never said he owned it. I think it was on e- it was on eBay. I remember when it was on eBay and it was like over ten G's to buy it. And if I had the dough, I would. <laughs> um, yeah. Hold on, I'm going back down into the comments again. Dun 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 dun. Crazy fool cost me a pretty penny I have a digital scan of it somebody i I was able to get a hold of it um, Angus says I saw Burroughs in person he moved out of New York to Lawrence because his personal secretary James uh, Grauerholtz just moved there uh, a move uh, both to get away from uh, a move for both to get away from the drugs interesting very very interesting so even there you know he was trying um. They should put it back into print. There's a reason why it's not in print anymore, because again, there's a lot of information there. There's a lot of information there that gets gr- like completely omit- like omitted. In fact, maybe that's our next deep dive, okay? Maybe that's what we need to do. We need to deep dive that book. We'll, we'll read the book on the air. That's what we're going to do. That's exactly what we're going to do. So uh, if you are down with the band that they call sublime, you will appreciate when we do a read through of crazy fool. That's what we're going to do. Like just the way we do with the, with the misfit stuff, we're going to do that as well. Um, before we get out of here, I'm just want to make sure I'm plenty thorough. If there's any little, you know, I didn't take notes when I was watching this thing. The movie is fresh in my mind and I'm just trying to like, Uh, glaze over anything interesting. Oh, one thing that was not discussed, but kind of alluded to a little bit was was Gwen talking about her crush on Brad. And it's my understanding, and again, I don't know the details. I just remember this from old forums that don't exist anymore. It's my understanding that Brad and Gwen hooked up uh, more than once. I don't know if it was Post-Tony or pre-Tony, Gwen was in a relationship with Tony Canal for, you know, most of No Doubt, and they... um They were, they were, they, they were dating for most of no doubt. And, uh, and then they had a breakup and I don't know, I think they, I think they had a hook. I think they hooked up Brad and Gwen hooked up after that. I don't know where Troy falls into this. I don't know if it was before Brad started seeing Troy or if it was after, but there was, you know, there was some stuff, there was something, something was going on. Um, and so it's my understanding that, that Gwen and Brad had a thing, had an actual thing. And Gwen, basically in the doc, she talks about like how she had this like sort of crush on him, but it wasn't like sort of like a romantic crush per se. Uh, That was another interesting thing, too. I didn't know that Troy had a boyfriend. Troy had a boyfriend when she first met Brad and she like talks about their relationship. That's something that never really got fleshed out. That actually got fleshed out a little bit in crazy in, in, uh, in the doc. So, you know, there is some stuff that 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 is discovered and or discussed uh, in the doc. It's not it's not like a total cookie cutter, you know, uh, thing, but it is squeaky clean, like a lot of stuff, even the way Bud. I don't know. I got to be honest. Bud's Bud's interview kind of Bud's interview reminded me of Paul later Paul McCartney interviews where He's just very much like going through the motions of telling these paint by number stories that he's told so many times that like he just had like he knows it's like he repeats what he says verbatim. It just I don't know. Kind of bums me out. Wiz Bang says I was in line with you at the Prudential Center this summer. Okay. Yeah, right. At the Misfit show. You should have said hello, man. You should have said hello. If you ever see me out in the world. Always come and say hello. I'm a very friendly guy, as you could tell. Very extroverted. Oh, you're just now realizing it. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, Dan says, I'll post my live recording of the Long Beach Dub All-Stars at First Ave at Minneapolis, Minnesota, January of 2000. Please do, Dan. Uh, Send it to Reed. It sounds like that's something that he wanted or wants to. One of these days, if anyone cares, uh, tape runs out two songs from the end. Yeah, you should. Definitely do it. I think people, So, but you know, that is the one cool thing about Sublime. It seems like they're one of those bands, like they don't really care what's out there. There are some bands that, as we know, there are some bands that get very upset if you put anything online live, but like there are other bands that are like super okay with like just having stuff out there. Sublime seems to be one of those bands. You can kind of just put stuff out there. Um, Who knows? Maybe we should do our own like more definitive Sublime retrospective You know, like there's plenty of fucking material out there. It's just. It's crazy. Reed says. Reed says um, Ross one's guitar player is the main LB LBDS Long Beach dub all stars archivist, and he would love to connect with you. How can I reach out? Yay. I love when this stuff happens. Um, You guys connect. Do it. Through emails or whatever Listen, if you have trouble connecting You can connect through me Send an email to fromusmail at gmail.com With the email address And I'll I'll, I'll pass it along I, I'm in touch with Reed So I could pass it along to him Dan, if you want Vice versa Wizbank says I got introduced to your channel Right before seeing Danzig sing Elvis At M- M- Montalban Oh, that's cool We love Danzig sings Elvis um, what else can I say? What can I hope for in the future? I don't know. I, I don't know what this biopic is going to be. Um, sublime with Rome doesn't have any actual sublime members in it anymore. Um, what we really need now is a mini series that covers everything, you know, all five, you know, uh, five segments. And here's the thing, the people that could do a mini series, Would need to have access to all the people, you know, but like they're all out there, dude. The Ziggins are out there like everybody's out there. Just fucking contact them. Make it happen. Do do another documentary. See, you know what the part of the problem was? This was too close to sublime. I feel like you need someone that's not connected with the band to make the documentary. It needs to be a completely unbiased look a scathing look, a scathing portrait of the truth of the whole band. In fact, even more so than a documentary, I think I would be just as happy with a fucking really in-depth book, like an oral history, like a really, really, really in-depth history about Sublime, you know, that really just sort of goes through. That's really how you would do it. I don't think maybe you could tell it in it. Maybe you can't tell it in a in a documentary, maybe instead what you have to do is you, you actually have to tell it in book form and just do chapters. Like I want to know everything there is to know about Robin the hood. And again, of all the things that they covered that were kind of unknown to me, the Robin, the hood stuff was fucking, that was the shit seeing. I didn't get, I didn't, uh I, I didn't say this before. Cause I got carried away in what I was saying. There was a sketch. Someone did a sketch of the t- of the secret tweaker pad and the couch where Brad lived in this flop house with a bunch of drug addicts in like a it was like a storefront building. And like to see like he, he just had a bunch of recording equipment and like to see the whole setup. And then they would like cut like the, the director, Bill, did a great job of using some you know, footage that was out there to sort of really paint a picture along with this sort of sketch up of what that place looked like. It really painted a picture. Well, I was very pleased with that. That was cool. Wizbang said Danzig sings Elvis was my introduction to all of Glenn's work before hearing that I'd never listened to any of his bands. I also got to meet Glenn this tour was You're kind of blowing my mind, right? Now. You are like legit blowing my mind right now with saying that. I mean, it's cool. Like, it's not bad. Like, it's an amazing thing. Like, it just blows my mind that Danzig sings Elvis. You know, everybody's everybody's first exposure to something is something, you know. My first exposure to Sublime was the self-titled record, right? I don't think... It, oh, maybe it was 40 Ounce to Freedom. No, it was 40 Ounce to Freedom, actually. Um, I guess there are some people, their first exposure to fucking Danzig is fucking Danzig sings Elvis. That's crazy dan's looking forward to the crazy fool reading okay it's good it dan it's it's a done deal we're gonna do it we're gonna read crazy fool on here that's what we're gonna do we've done a, we've done other stuff right we might as well do crazy fool uh i'm also reading the mad max novelization for anybody who cares that's on here we did the return of the living dead novelization too that's on here as well we got a bunch of stuff bunch of stuff um You know, it's interesting, though, Uh, you know, I've seen some interviews with Eric recently, Eric Wilson, and he seems very out of it. Like, if you know what I mean, he seems very out of it Um, in the doc. He seems very like sober, you know, even though he doesn't have a lot to say. It feels like he's very clear minded when he's speaking. Um, So that was interesting. That's interesting, too. Um trying to think what else again like jim you know jim noel is in so much of storytelling lies and exaggerations and he's just like not in this at all and i feel like he's an integral part to the sublime story you know he was there he fucking bankrolled some of sublime you know he bought the fucking van dude you know like we need to hear more from him i'm i'm stoked the, the the no doubt guys were no you know all the no doubt heads were in it um Trying to think who else could have been in this that that new Sublime. The Incubus dude, that one of the dudes from Incubus is in it. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, I don't know. Uh again, no Mike Watt. You know, Sublime was heavily influenced by Mike Watt, or you know, Minutemen were a influence on Sublime. Nada, nothing. I guess I would have liked to have seen more musicians like contemporaries, anybody who, frankly, fat Mike from no effects. I, that would have been a great interview to get. He was around at that time, you know, I'm sure sublime and no effects crossed paths more than once. Um, So that would have been a great interview that we could have seen. There were just, there were just a bunch. There was just a bunch of, 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 people that they could have spoken to i know i've said that like a hundred times now um i told him i told him how i got into his work and i told him that i saw him in the same light as elvis and how did he and he loved that that's awesome (laughs) we'll be heading out to see morning noise in october steve told me about that show since i told him i wanted to catch the show most of them near me were 21 plus Whizbang, how old are you? You're you're under 21. That, man, that is, oh, my God. Dude, Dan's bringing up a huge point. Dude, the Lords of Brooklyn, who, who toured with Sublime. They didn't even bring up Wesley Willis. Wesley Willis, dude. Like, none of that shit got brought up. Uh, Incubus opened for Sublime once or twice. Pretty sure they got their big break at one of those shows. Uh, you know who what I would have liked to have heard from? This is kind of controversial and probably would make some people mad, but I'm just gonna like whatever. Fucking Three Eleven. I know Three Eleven had a rivalry, like they, there was like a thing with Sublime, and they like had a lot of overlap, and they're kind of like fake Cali boys because they're really from like somewhere in Oklahoma or something. Um, it would have been interesting to hear what they had to say about Sublime. So not necessarily. That's what I would have liked to have heard. That would have been interesting, the 311 guys. And I'm sure they probably, there was some stuff. There was some stuff between them. They had a they had a thing. Yeah, whiz bang, is, whiz bang is 19 going on 20. Third concert ever. Dude, I love that. Whiz Bang. Fuck, Whiz Bang. If you're 20, if you're 20, that means you were born in 2003. I feel so fucking old, bro. Dude, how are 20-year-olds born in 2003? That is so weird to me. That's awesome though. Wizbang, I'm happy for you and I'm glad you got to meet Glenn and I'm glad you got to you know, uh go see the Misfits and Danzig and all that. It's great. Freaking great. Um is there anything else we haven't said about this? I feel like we've covered it. Listen, it looks like we got our, our sublime cut out for us, right? We got more sublime We got some more sublime to discuss. We're going to do crazy fool. I think that's the next step. Okay. That's the next step. So listen, if I didn't say it before, please leave some skulls in the live chat, leave some skulls in the comments, Uh, subscribe to the channel, check out the Patreon, check out the YouTube memberships. Uh, Make sure you like this video. Make sure you subscribe uh thank you for joining me on this very discombobulated i really should have taken notes i didn't take notes i should have taken notes that would have made this a lot easier uh but thank you for joining me and we will see you next time here at the from channel uh peace and hair grease